Welcome to the Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Kaz. And I'm Em. And in this episode, we're covering another hard-hitting topic that, for many of us, may be pretty close to home. Today we're going to look at some biblical texts that include stories of sexual violence. So just a heads up at the start, we'll be discussing how rape is understood and represented in the Bible, and we'll also be comparing biblical stories of rape with some more recent cases of sexual assault. So if you find the subject particularly distressing, you may want to skip the episode. And as always, we'll leave some links in our show notes to resources and support services in case some of our listeners want to check them out. So um, we've both done quite a bit of research on sexual violence in the Bible and I know that we've both been asked in the past by various people why we think it's important to explore biblical stories of sexual violence. So how do you normally respond to that question? Yeah, that is a common question. Yeah. I think it's important because these texts have a great deal of power. And we've said this in previous episodes, biblical texts have power to shape our beliefs, our ideologies. They have this incredible world-creating potential. Oh, can you explain a bit more what that means? Sure. So I mean that biblical texts can influence how we see and understand the world around us and how we treat other people. Mm. Now, in this Me Too era, we've become increasingly aware of just how pervasive sexual violence actually is in our communities. But sadly, we're also aware that it isn't always taken seriously enough. No, no. It's not taken seriously by the judicial system, the media, and by the wider public. So there are many harmful myths and misperceptions out there that downplay the seriousness of rape and sexual abuse, or that blame and shame victims and exonerate perpetrators. And these myths are so deeply ingrained in our cultural consciousness that we don't always recognize them, even when they're staring us straight in the face. No, that's so true. Yeah. And what I think we've both become aware of in the work that we do on the subject, Kaz, is that biblical stories about sexual violence can also influence how readers make sense of sexual violence in their own contemporary contexts, including how they engage with the various myths and misperceptions around this crime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the Bible is like any other text that talks about or portrays sexual violence and whether it's literature or film, TV, song lyrics or a news report or social media post. I mean, all of these things can influence how we understand sexual violence or how seriously we take it, even though we might not realise that at the time. I mean, to, to give you an example, a recent example, I was reading a crime fiction novel and during the course of the story, one of the characters is sexually assaulted by a former boyfriend. But it, it kind of gets brushed aside as though it isn't that serious. You know, the perpetrator makes a sort of half-hearted apology and the victim just seems to accept that and kind of forgets about the incident really quickly. And I think that kind of bothered me because it's reinforcing to readers one of those myths about rape you mentioned, you know, that, that sexual assault just isn't that big of a deal. Mm. It's something we can dismiss as harmless. It doesn't really impact the victim to any great extent, you know, and, and then they, they shouldn't really make a fuss about it. Yeah, and I think that if we're used to seeing that kind of messaging about sexual violence and all the different things we read and watch and listen to, it can almost unconsciously become part of our own worldview or it can validate the views that we already hold. Yeah. And I think this influence is even stronger when the text we're looking at is the Bible because it's sacred scripture. 
And as sacred scripture, it carries huge authority in faith communities, so readers are less likely to challenge what it says or question how it depicts and understands sexual violence. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really true. So how are we going to tackle this topic today, Em? What I thought we'd do is structure the episode around some of the different myths and misperceptions about rape that we come across so often in our everyday discussions about and portrayals of sexual violence. Cool. And for each myth, we'll connect it to a biblical story of rape, but we'll also draw on some contemporary examples that demonstrate how these myths can be so damaging and really distort our understanding of sexual violence. Hmm, that sounds like a, an excellent plan. And um, what biblical texts are you focusing on? Because you know, we've got quite a few to choose from, don't we? We have. We have too many to choose from. <laughs> yeah. But I think we'll stick with two narratives. Both of them are from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, and both are very explicit portrayals of rape. In each case, the victim is a woman. And in today's episode, we're going to focus on female victims and survivors. We are going to cover sexual violence against men in another episode. But to be honest, a lot of what we're going to talk about today will also be relevant for rape victims of other genders as well. Mm, Okay. So the texts chosen today are Genesis 34 and 2 Samuel 13. Now, Kaz, I know for a fact that you know (laughs) both these texts really well. Do you want to give us a quick summary of these two narratives? Sure, I will. Um, And they're quite complicated stories, so I'll try and keep keep the descriptions brief. So let's start with Genesis 34. This is the story of Dina who is the daughter of Jacob and Leah. And Jacob has just moved the family to a new location in Canaan near a city called Shechem. So we're told that Dina goes out to see if she can meet some of the local women. But when she's out, the prince of the city, who's also called Shechem, which rather confusingly, he sees Dina, he takes hold of her and he rapes her. He then decides that he's in love with her and wants to marry her. So he and his father, Hamor, approach Dina's father and brothers to see if they can arrange the marriage. And they also suggest that Jacob's whole family can integrate and intermarry with the people of the region. Now, Dina's brothers are furious. And to cut a long story short, they go to the city of Shechem and they rescue Dina, who's been held captive there since her rape. Then they raid and pillage the city, killing all the men, including Prince Shechem and his father, and abducting all the women. Yeah, it really is a full-on action story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's an awful lot going on there. But let me give a brief summary now of 2 Samuel 13, because it is another full action story. So we're introduced to Tamar, one of King David's daughters, and she has a full brother called Absalom and a half-brother called Amnon. Now, Amnon is madly in lust with Tamar, but he doesn't know what to do about it because for some reason he can't get access to her. You know, she's a virgin princess, so so maybe, you know, she was kept under close guard. So Amnon's friend Jonadab comes up with this plan and Amnon follows the plan. He pretends he's sick. Then he asks his father, David, if Tamar can visit him and cook him some health-giving snacks. David agrees, so Tamar is duly dispatched to visit her brother. But once she's there, Amnon tells everyone else to leave. Then he asks her to come into his bedroom with the food so that he can, I think he says, so I can eat it from your hand. So she does what she's told. But then Amnon grabs her and says to her, have sex with me. Mm. Now, Tamar is horrified and tells him no quite explicitly and forcefully. 
And she says, you know, we're, we're not married. It would be really shameful. You know, maybe we should ask our father if we can get married first. So you need to wait. But Amnon just doesn't listen to her and he grabs hold of her and rapes her. Now, after the rape, we're told that his love turned to an intense hatred. And although Tamar is still trying to reason with him at this point, he just gets his servants to throw her out of his house. And she's incredibly distressed and makes her way to her brother Absalom's house, where he gives her shelter. And he also tells her not to talk about her experience. Her story ends with the readers being told that she spends the rest of her life living in Absalom's house as a desolate woman. Mm, such a heartbreaking story. Hey? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're both heartbreaking stories. Yes. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. So one of the reasons I chose these two texts is that I think that together they reflect quite a lot of the different rape myths that we still see today in our contemporary cultures. So Kaz, to start us off, can you give me an example of a rape myth that you're familiar with? Oh yeah, I mean the one that probably comes to mind first is the myth that rape victims must have been, in air quotes, asking for it. Mm. Blaming rape victims for their own victimisation is so incredibly common. I mean, we see it everywhere, don't we? We absolutely do. I mean, a victim's behaviour and appearance are so often used as evidence that she must have kind of provoked or encouraged her rapist to sexually assault her. Mm -hmm. It's as though she's the one who's put on trial for being responsible for her own victimisation. You know, was she being too flirty? Did she send out the wrong signals? Did she make her rapist think that she wanted to have sex with him? I mean, was her skirt too short or her blouse too low cut? Was she intoxicated at the time? Questions like these are designed to make us view the rape as some sort of inevitable outcome of the victim's actions. It's like it's somehow her fault. She's seen as culpable, to some degree at least. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and another thing, you know, a, a victim's prior sexual history is often brought up too, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if, if she's had previous sexual partners or uses dating apps like Tinder, you know, these things become massive red flags, which lead people to conclude that she must have given her rapist the impression that she would welcome his sexual advances. Exactly. Or even if a woman's just out and about in a public place, minding her own business or simply walking home, questions still get asked. Like, what was she doing out at that time of night? Or she shouldn't have been out by herself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that came out really clearly in some of the responses to the, the, you know, the 2021 rape and murder of British woman, Sarah Everard. Mm. She was walking home after visiting a friend when an off-duty police officer stopped her and claimed he was arresting her for violating COVID lockdown regulations. And then he abducted her, raped her and murdered her. It was just like the most horrifying crime. Now, despite the fact that she was clearly coerced here by a man in a position of authority, a police officer, you know, this didn't stop North Yorkshire Police Commissioner Philip Allott implicitly blaming Sarah by saying publicly that women need to learn more about the law and to be, and these are his words, streetwise about when they can be arrested and when they can't be arrested. Now, no, I'm sorry, it is not a woman's responsibility to memorise law codes no. just in case she's abducted and raped by a police officer. I mean, it's just, oh, it's infuriating. That constant messaging women get that it's their responsibility to not get raped so it's clearly their fault if they do get raped. You're so right. It's just, it's utterly, utterly infuriating. Mm. And if we look at our biblical narratives, 
poor old Dina gets her fair share of victim blaming as well. Oh yeah, yeah. So Genesis 34 verse 1 simply states that Dina went out to visit the local women, but most interpretations of this verse implicitly blame her for what happens. The phrase went out is often assumed to mean that she was in the wrong place, i.e. she was outside, and so allowed herself to be seen by her rapist. And I think the implied suggestion is that she should shoulder at least some of the blame of what happened to her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know whether or not the narrator meant to put some of the blame on Dina here, mm. but I have come across quite a few biblical interpreters who do victim blame her. Some accuse her of actually going out to find some male company, even though the biblical text says quite clearly that she went out to meet the local women. I remember reading one biblical scholar who said that she had, and these are his words, deliberately exposed herself to the men of this pagan city and she was therefore far more at fault for what happened than anyone else. Um, Yeah. And uh, another scholar even said that Dina was essentially a woman who was, and these are the, the scholar's words, looking to be raped. No way. No, no way. (laughs) Yeah. It actually just makes me want to hurl something across the room. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even to say that women would look to be raped, that's ridiculous and ludicrous. It is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe it shouldn't surprise me too much because actually I've come across some other interpretations that maybe are a little bit less toxic, but they still draw on the victim blaming myth. Mm -hmm. Some scholars say, for example, that while Dina didn't actively go out looking for male attention, she was still a bit naive and really should have known better than to stray from the family home. But it's kind of ironic when we think about Tamar's experience, because it's another common myth that women are most likely to be raped by a stranger when they're out in public places. But actually, in reality, women are more likely to be sexually assaulted in their own home by someone they know. Yeah. And so so in essence, in you know, the bottom line is whatever rape victims do, if they stay in or if they go out, they're at risk of sexual assault and they're likely to be held responsible to some degree for their own victimization. Exactly. It's it's interesting though, isn't it, that you know, Tamar is in many ways the like air quotes perfect rape victim, or um as theologian Kristen Leslie calls her, you know, the Virgin Mary victim. Oh yeah, what's what's that? Can you ex- explain that? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's it's a term that's often used to shine a light on, you know, how victim blaming labels some victims as being more innocent than others or some as being more guilty than others. The perfect rape victim stereotype is a woman who's sexually pure and virginal, like Tamar. The perfect victim makes very clear to her rapist that she is not consenting and she does everything in her power to stop the rape from happening, which Tamar seems to do too. The perfect victim isn't intoxicated or dressed inappropriately or giving out any messages that she's interested in having sex. Again, just like Tamar. So this ideal victim shouldn't, in theory, be blamed for her rape. Mm. But that idea of the perfect rape victim is just another myth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Because even Tamar is not beyond some reader's critique. I remember I once read an article by a scholar who I won't name in shame, (laughs) but they actually described Tamar as a flirtatious, ambitious, and stupid woman of easy virtue. Oh, wow. Yeah who orchestrated the entire scene to get Amnon to marry her. I mean, it's quite extraordinary the lengths to which this scholar goes just so they can put the blame on Tamar. Everything she did, going to Amnon, making him food, taking it to his bedroom. 
all of this is kind of twisted so it sounds as though she's to blame. Mm. And you know what what's frustrating is that most of her actions leading up to her rape are orchestrated by men. Yeah. Tamara is told by her father to go to Amnon's house. She's told to cook for him. Then Amnon tells her to come into his bedchamber and she does what she's told because she is this sort of a dutiful and obedient daughter and sister. And yet it sounds as though she still gets held responsible for her own rape, in in some people's minds at least. It actually reminds me a bit of some recent cases of women who've been sexually victimised by powerful or influential men, such as Jeffrey Epstein, R. Kelly, Larry Nassar and Harvey Weinstein, just to give a few examples. In these cases, and in so many other similar cases, these men targeted women and girls who were young and vulnerable. And who could easily be coerced because the men abusing them were so much more powerful or they had social status and respect. Mm. But that doesn't stop people trying to blame their victims, you know, pointing out their naivety or asking questions like, you know, well, what did you expect to happen when he invited you to his house or his hotel room? Or did you do something to give him the wrong impression? It's as though we just can't accept that when a woman says she's been raped, it wasn't her fault. And, and you know, I'm sorry, but it never is her fault. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, never. <laughs> never. Maybe one of the things that some readers are a bit puzzled about by Tamar's initial response to Amnon's advances is when she says to him, quote, please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. Mm. So I wonder what that's about. I wonder if it's just a tactic that she deliberately uses to stall the assault until she can kind of get to safety. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you heard of fawning as a response that victims might use when they're threatened with rape? No, I don't think so, no. So psychologists recognize that when people are confronted with a threat, they often respond in one of four ways, flight, fright, freeze, or fawn. Okay. And these four responses are built-in defense mechanisms that kick in automatically when people feel threatened, either physically or psychologically. And this process can happen with rape victims too. A victim might try to fight back, or she might try to flee or run away, or maybe she'll freeze and play dead. But she might also fawn, which means that she tries to please her attacker in the hope that this will make him less likely to harm her. Okay. So all of these, the fight, flight, freeze and fawn are attempts at survival during an incredibly stressful experience. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so that could be what's going on with Tamar here. You know, her her fawning is uh, when she she says to to Amnon, like, let's wait until we're married. that, That could be her fawning as a way to show Amnon she's trying to be helpful and accommodating, almost trying to talk him down. Yeah. And stop him using force against her. Mm. But, you know, I can imagine that when victims use some of these tactics, such as fawning or, or freezing, it's often held against them as evidence of their consent, because mm. that's another rape myth, isn't it? That, you know, if victims don't fight their attacker with every ounce of their strength or, or try to get away from them in any possible way, then it's not a, your quotes, real rape. Exactly. It's just another way to blame victims and survivors and to take responsibility away from the perpetrator. Yeah, I I think the myth of victim blame is also connected to another myth we see in some interpretations of Tamar's and Dina's stories. And that's the idea that men just can't help themselves, Mm. which is really 
really offensive for men as well as for women. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the idea that men can't control their so-called natural urges when they catch sight of a woman's body is blatantly ridiculous. Yeah. But it's yet another common myth that helps to, once again, take the blame away from perpetrators of sexual violence. I think this actually comes out implicitly in 2 Samuel 13, when the narrator tells us how beautiful Tamar is mm. and how Amnon is totally sick with lust. It's as though he's lost his mind or he's not thinking mm. rationally, that it's her beauty that's to blame. Yeah, you know, Amnon reminds me a bit of an incel. You know, one of these guys who declare themselves to be an involuntary celibate. Oh yeah, okay. Why does that remind you of Amnon? Well, so what I've learned about incels is they, they operate with these two contradictory beliefs in their head. So on the one hand, they recognize they're not good enough for the women they want to have sex with. And these, you know, these women are, are out of their reach. They're too beautiful, too popular. But on the other hand, incels feel this incredible sense of entitlement to have sex with these women. So right. it's kind of two contrasting beliefs that they're, they're kind of holding in tension. Mm. And, and that kind of sense of entitlement is what fuels their anger and misogyny because their entitlement isn't being respected. So it kind of reminds me of Amnon because he recognizes that Tamar, the virgin princess, is out of his reach, but he still feels entitled to have sex with her. And the way that he treats her with utter contempt after raping her, it reminds me of the you know, the toxic misogyny that lies at the heart of incel belief systems. Yeah, that's such an interesting connection. But I don't think we see that same incel ideology in Genesis 34. Although it's interesting that both Amnon and Shechem are both princes, and that kind of taps into the idea of men in power feeling entitled to have whatever woman they want, regardless of what the woman herself wants. Mm, yeah. But interpreters often draw on another myth about rapists when they discuss Shechem, because time and again, he's framed as this kind of good guy at heart. <laughs> yeah, he loves yeah. Dina. He wants to do the right thing and marry her. He's offered her father a generous bride price. All of these things are used to valorize him and and downplay the violence of his actions. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, that's something we see so often in contemporary discussions of rapists too. There's this myth that, that men who rape are these sort of grotesque monsters lurking in the shadows. So it's hard to believe that a man who doesn't fit that sort of monstrous stereotype is actually capable of sexual assault. If he's in a relationship or has a family or a respectable profession, we don't want to believe that he's capable of rape. It's as though men's social status almost blinds people to their capacity for sexual violence. Yeah. And you know, I think that came out really strongly in the case of Larry Nassar, the, the former physician for the U.S national gymnastic team so nasar i don't know have you heard of that um yeah I, I think i've heard of it but remind me so nasar was convicted of uh, repeatedly sexually assaulting at least 265 young women and girls Far out. and he got away with it for so long because he was a respected physician and not everyone believed his victims when they first started to report that he was abusing them yeah, yeah, that was horrific. Mm. And I think we see something similar with perpetrators who are considered to be kind of, quote, promising young men. Yeah. No one wants to ruin their lives by accusing them of being yeah. a rapist. Yeah. And this is exactly what happened in the Brock Turner case, isn't it? Do, do you yeah. remember that case? Yes, yeah, yeah. So Turner was convicted in 2016 of three charges of felony sexual assault against Chanel Miller. 
he received a ridiculously short sentence of six months Mm. owing to his apparent remorse but also the fact that he had no prior convictions and he was actually released from prison after three months for good behavior and I recall that during the trial a great deal got made of the fact that Turner was a student at an Ivy League university he was a talented swimmer who had hopes of representing the USA at the next Olympics And his impressive lap times were even quoted in a news report about the attack as if they were kind of relevant. Yeah, they're not. (laughs) Exactly. And and there's almost this sense of mourning that his conviction had ruined his promising life. Mm. His father even said that his son's six-month sentence was, quote, a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action. Oh, man. That's that's just so infuriating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. A a serious sexual assault that left a woman physically and emotionally traumatised is reframed as 20 minutes of action. It's it's as though sexual violence is such a trivial matter, it shouldn't really be taken seriously. Yes, exactly. And that's another rape myth, isn't it? That rape is just sex, so it's nothing to get too worked up about. And we see that in the responses to Genesis 34, where Shechem's assault of Dina is quickly forgotten after he declares his love for her and offers to marry her. Mm. Shechem himself doesn't seem aware that he's done anything wrong, and nor does his father. Yeah, and, and I think that also comes up in the case of Tamar's rape too. You know, The fact that Jonadab helped Amnon set things up makes me think that neither man is imagining what will inevitably happen to Tamar as a violent assault. It's as though they're framing it as a sexual event, so nothing to feel guilty about. In my mind, I think both men must surely have realised that Tamar's encounter with Amnon could easily turn violent and non-consensual. Otherwise, why the need for all their subterfuge? Mm. So, you know, they're they're both essentially minimising rape or or the prospect of rape as just an inevitable outcome of male desire. Yeah, the way that Amnon and Jonadab seem to trivialize rape also reminds me of what Absalom said to Tamar when she went to his house after her encounter with Amnon. So Absalom said, and these are his words, has Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Now, He may be just trying to console her, but it's such a powerful attempt to minimize her trauma. Be quiet. Don't worry about it. He's essentially shutting down her right to feel traumatized. But it's also interesting that he seems to know intuitively what Amnon has done without Tamar even having to tell him. Which makes me wonder if Absalom knew, or at least suspected, what Amnon was planning. But just like Jonadab, he does nothing to prevent it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that could be true, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's such a familiar story, isn't it? You know, I, th- I think a lot of people, myself included, have worked or studied in places where sexual predators and serial offenders are operating, like, in plain sight, literally. Mm. But no one is willing to call them out on it. Or, you know, it's brushed aside as just a character quirk. You know, oh, yeah, everyone knows he's a bit of a sleaze, but, oh, he's essentially harmless. Just Ugh. ignore him. Yeah. That's just who he is. He's always been like that. And, you know, it really minimises the seriousness 
of sexual harm. It normalizes it as acceptable or at least tolerable behavior. And it really enables perpetrators just to keep doing what they're doing with impunity. That's so true. I hung about in the music world a bit back in the day, and I know of at least two perpetrators whose actions were kind of just brushed aside with comments like, oh, but that's just so-and-so. It's it's part of their genius. And their abuse was legitimized or skated over because they were such amazing musicians. Mm. Now, both these men have subsequently been outed, as it were, but the minimizing was very real, and it went on for many, many years. Yeah, that's not good. So there's one more rape myth that I want to cover because it really comes out in both Dina's and Tamar's story. And that's the myth that rape victims are, quote, damaged goods, Mm. that their sexual assault has somehow rendered them less pure or socially valuable because their rapist has violated their chastity. Mm, Yeah, that that is really common, a really common myth. And I mean, I know that victims themselves sometimes feel that the rapist has damaged them or, or defiled them in some way. You know, rape is a crime that leaves many victims and survivors feeling violated and humiliated because you know, rapists treat their victims with contempt, like an object that can be used and discarded. And they completely deny their victim any sense of agency and subjectivity. So these feelings of, of kind of damage or defilement that survivors may have are really understandable. But I think, are you talking about the other people's responses to survivors? Yeah, I'm referring to the way that some people view survivors and victims as having lost something of their social or cultural value because of their rape. Yeah. So their chastity or their sexual purity has been compromised by the rape. And in our patriarchal world, an unchaste woman is a damaged woman. Mm. And I think that's exactly the same in the biblical world, where women were considered the sexual property of men. So unmarried women like Tamar and Dina were expected to be virgins until they were married, as that would allow their father to ask for a decent bride price from a prospective husband. But an unmarried woman who isn't a virgin, either through rape or consensual sex, has somehow lost some of her value. So rape was essentially seen first and foremost as the theft of a man's sexual property. Yeah, it's really annoying. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it's interesting that, that Dina is described as being defiled like three times in Genesis 34. So it's clearly important. Mm. And, you know, I often wonder if that's why her brothers were so angry um, and why they reacted so violently. You know, Shechem had laid claim to their family's sexual property, essentially stealing it and subsequently shaming the family. And, and sure, Shechem offers to pay them a generous bride price to marry Dina. But I, I think they're just so offended that he's shown them so much disrespect, you know, sort of taking their sister without getting their permission first. And that's what kind of sparks their violence. Yeah. And of course, when the brothers do exact their revenge, they kill all the men of the city of Shechem and take all the women captive. It's as though they see it as the perfect revenge. You stole one of our women. Now we're stealing all of yours. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Absalom's revenge on Amnon, it is different, isn't it? It, You know, he, I always find it interesting, he ends up orchestrating Amnon's murder, but he waits two years to do it. Mm. 
But you're thinking about the the victim's sense of defilement. It's clear in the narrative that Tamar herself feels some sense of damage or or shame. And she stresses that to Amnon before and after he rapes her. She really talks to him about the sense of shame that both of them will feel if he if he rapes her but after the rape it's as though she feels she's lost something of herself because of the attack because as she makes her way to her brother Absalom's house I get the sense that she's grieving yeah she's weeping she's wailing she tears her clothes and throws dust on her head it's all the classic signs of mourning you know she's she's lost something and she's mourning it and oh my goodness it's it's really heartbreaking isn't it yeah it's such a powerful image it's it so powerfully illustrates i think just how traumatizing and damaging sexual violence can yeah. be for victims yeah Now, of course, victims and survivors respond differently in the aftermath of their rapes, and they all have different journeys on their road towards some sense of recovery or healing. Mm -hmm. But for many survivors, their assault changes their lives forever. Yeah, it does. It really does. And I just wish that Absalom hadn't told Tamar to be quiet Mm. when she arrived at his house. Yeah. She should have been able to tell her story. But, you know, Absalom literally shuts her up. You know, he shuts up her voice. He tells her to be quiet and he leaves her to live sort of shut up in his house for the rest of her life. Yeah, And you know, it's the same with Dina because we never hear her voice at all throughout the Genesis 34 narrative, despite her being at the centre of all the action that takes place. You know, she's totally silenced and all we hear are the voices of the men around her, you know, her rapist, his enablers, her brothers, her father. They all talk about her but they never let her speak. Yeah, that's such an important point to hold on to, I think, because many survivors do say that having the ability to speak openly and safely about their rape can be a pivotal part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. I've got here a really powerful quote by philosopher Susan Bryson, who is herself a victim of sexual violence. She says, and these are her words, it is only by remembering and narrating the past telling our stories and listening to others, that we can participate in an ongoing active construction of a narrative of liberation, not one that confines us to a limiting past, but one that forms a background from which a freely imagined and desired future can emerge. That is a really, really powerful quote. And it, it kind of makes me think about um, Chanel Miller again, you know, the woman who survived Brock Turner's sexual assault. Mm. I remember reading her victim impact statement that was read out in court and just how powerful it was in the way it allowed her to tell her story to the court and to the public. Because up to that point, the most dominant narrative we'd heard was Turner's. It was his story and his account of events that we were sort of focusing on. But Chanel's statement made so clear and in in no uncertain terms that, no, this wasn't just 20 minutes of action. This was a violent and traumatic assault that had lasting repercussions for Chanel. And, you know, as she said in her statement, and this is just one small part of it I'm going to read out, she said, this is not a story of another drunk college hookup with poor decision making. Assault is not an accident. Mm, That's so powerful, isn't Mm -hmm, it? mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important place to land our conversation because it centers the experience of the victim. Yes. So Kaz, what are your final thoughts about our discussion in this episode? 
Well, I, I could rant about this topic for hours because um, I feel very passionately about it, but I won't. Um, I'll spare you. But, but in, a, in a nutshell, I mean, I think that what I take away from our discussion today is that you know, as a society, we need to stop minimising rape and trying to brush it under the carpet. We need to stop blaming and shaming victims and survivors. We need to stop excusing and valorizing perpetrators. We have to face up to the fact that sexual violence is actual violence and that it is never the victim's fault. And we need to remember all of this if we want to make rapists understand that their behavior can never be tolerated. And we have to let victims and survivors know that we take their voices and their experiences seriously. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, so yeah. What about you? What do you take away from it? I'm just listening to you thinking, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I'm the same. I mean, again, there's so much we could say about this topic. I feel like we're just getting started. Mm. But I think my final thought is an extension of yours. And that's the importance of centering the experience of the victim or the survivor. Yeah. Because we've seen time and again in our discussion today that the experience of the perpetrator, actually the experience of almost everyone except the victim or survivor is taken into account or or gets taken seriously. But the experience of the victim is discounted or ignored. But we've also heard that it is fundamentally important for victims of sexual violence to be seen, to be heard, to be believed, and to be at the center of any attempt at justice. And I think this is true when we encounter instances of sexual violence in the Bible, but also in our own communities. It's absolutely crucial that we center the experience of the victim. Mm, Yeah, amen to that. Before we bring this episode to a close, are we going to do our usual thing of sharing with listeners anything good we've been reading or listening to this week? Okay, well, I'm not going to plug a podcast this week. I'm actually going to profile a book. And Mm -hmm. as you might recognize the title of Mm -hmm. this book, it's called The Narrative of Rape in Genesis 34, (laughs) Interpreting Dina's Silence. Oh, you're so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) And it is, of course, written by the absolutely brilliant Caroline Blythe. I think I've heard of her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I read it for the first time when I was writing my PhD, but I've come back to it time and time again since. It is an academic book, but it is superbly written Mm. and it is very, very readable and offers really important insights into Dina's rape, which I think we've only really touched on today. Mm. So if you found our discussion today interesting, then this might just be the book for you. Oh, yes. Get yourself a copy. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I'm also going to plug a book this week rather than a podcast. Um, I've actually just started reading Chanel Miller's memoir, which is called Know My Name. And it's based around her experience of being sexually assaulted by Brock Turner, as well as her journey towards healing. And, uh, you know, she, she also takes time from what I've read so far. You know, she talks about some of those toxic myths and misperceptions about rape that we've been discussing today and it's her her writing's beautiful and it's really really powerful so I would highly recommend it oh thank you no I haven't I haven't read that and I'll so I have to borrow it after you (laughs) yeah yeah you can so as usual you'll find our show notes on the website along with the links to our social media but until next time see you later be safe everyone bye Bloody Bible podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks to Professor Johanna Stiebert at the University of Leeds 
who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan, and me, Richard Bonifant, who also recorded and edited each episode whilst apologising profusely on behalf of all men. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah.